I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Kathy Reichs, author of the Bones murder mystery novels, following Temperance Brennan as she solves crimes with her expertise in forensic anthropology. The Bones series has been phenomenally successful with 21 novels to date and a hit TV series of the same name, for which Kathy Reichs served as a producer. Now Kathy has a brand new Temperance Brennan mystery called Cold Cold Bones, and she'll be joining us to speak about that and much, much more in the conversation to follow. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Kathy Reichs, author of Cold Cold Bones. Welcome to Parallax Use, a guest that I've been uh, trying to get on uh, for about a month or so now. There's been some uh, reasons that we had to reschedule and whatnot, but I'm very excited to be speaking with Kathy Reichs, author of the best-selling Bones series uh, about Temperance Brennan, a forensic anthropologist, and she has a new entry out in that series, Cold Cold Bones. How are you doing today, Kathy? I'm good. I'm at the beach, so of course I'm good. So if you could, uh, maybe you could just give my listeners uh, an overview of what Cold Cold Bones has in store for them, because uh, it sort of has your main character, Tempe, uh, revisiting a lot of the cold cases of her past. Yeah, this book starts with one of my all-time favorite opening lines. It be how does it go? It all began with an eyeball. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Katie, Tempe's daughter, has retired from the military. She's moving to Charlotte. Tempe's delighted with both of those developments and is helping her move into her new home. They spend the whole day unpacking boxes. 
Then they go back to Tempe's house where they find a box on her back porch, which is the last thing they want to see. Inside the box is a human eyeball, a very fresh human eyeball. So it turns out Katie has extraordinarily precise vision. So with a magnifier, she is able to read etched into the side of the eyeball are GPS coordinates. So, of course, our intrepid heroine must follow those. They lead her to a Benedictine monastery where she, let me just say, she makes another grisly discovery. Not long after that, the medical examiner, her boss, sends her out to collect remains from a state park. And it's a, it's a mummified body hanging from a tree, an apparent suicide. I've had cases like that. So something begins nagging at Tempe, telling her that these seemingly unrelated cases are actually related. And eventually she figures out they're not random, they are related. And what's going on is there is somebody mimicking earlier cases from her career. There's a copycat killer out there. So she's got to find out why and who and um, shut them down. So something I wanted to start with um, in this conversation is just, uh, and, and I know this sounds really basic, but maybe defining uh, forensic anthropology or even more so, I guess, what are the misconceptions uh, people have about what forensic anthropology is? Because I think the basics of it is that you're, you're working with bones um, to, to solve sort of crime cases, but what, what is it uh with more than that as the sort of basic definition, what misconceptions do people maybe have about it? I think one of the misconceptions is, yes, we do ultimately get whatever we get from bones, but we don't work just with bones. We are called in in cases where a normal autopsy can't do the job because the body is decomposed, burned, mutilated, mummified, dismembered, or maybe just bones. But we have to remove all of that uninformative tissue, get down to the bones, and then we can address mm, one of two questions, primarily, what is who is it, identity, and what happened to that person, manner and cause of death. Could you also speak a little bit about how you became involved in uh, forensic anthropology? Because I know uh, you started in, I guess, uh, uh, was it physical anthropology or you, you weren't initially working with the police on cases? You, you'd gone to. Exactly. I initially, uh, my PhD thesis was on um, bioarchaeology, bones that were archaeologically derived, ancient skeletons. And I envisioned my career being just that. But eventually, because I was the bones lady at the university, um, police started asking for my help, bringing me modern cases. And once I started doing the forensic, I love archaeology. It's fascinating, but you're not going to change anyone's life. But with forensics, if you identify a missing family member or testify in court, you are going to impact someone's life. So I really liked the relevance of that. Um, I retrained and took my boards, became certified, and I've been doing forensics ever since. So this is the 21st entry, I believe, in the Bones series. What has it been like over the years writing all of these uh, stories? Because, you know, 21 books in a series is a, is a great accomplishment. 
Um, is it ever difficult coming up with news stories or where do you get your inspiration from? Is it from the headlines, a mix of that and also personal experiences or? That's exactly what it is. It's it, <clears throat> cases that I've worked on, personal experiences, cases that I've heard colleagues talk about, cases they've told me about. But sometimes it's just something, as you say, and what we used to say in the writer's room, um, ripped from the headlines. Uh, the book before Cold, Cold Bones was one of those. I, I read a little, what's it called? The Bone Code. I read a little blurb about um, a doctor in China who took, we have now the whole human genome mapped and we have the ability to modify the human genome with CRISPR. But all the scientists have agreed they're not going to do that just to do create designer babies. But I read this little article about a doctor in China who did. He modified the genomes of two unborn babies. So my brain all, all of a sudden goes to, well, okay, there's a great premise. What if someone uses this knowledge and technology for um, less than honorable purposes? So that was the trigger for the whole storyline in um, the bone code. So sometimes they're you know drawn from the headlines. Sometimes they're drawn from personal experience. This book, I thought it would be fun for my readers to revisit some of my earlier books. And that's what happens with this copycat killer. So what thriller readers do is they try to solve the crime mystery, the puzzle, before the author gives them the answer. So they can do that in Cold, Cold Bones, but they can also solve the puzzle of, well, what which books is she harking back to? Where did this hanging corpse mummified in the forest come from? So I think I thought they'd enjoy that. And I also thought for first time readers, it would give them a peek into what what the series is all about. I, I was curious, since you're revisiting a lot of Tempe's old cases um, in this book, was it a challenge having to remember, you know, all the all the details? Because I know you've talked before about uh, if a reader sees something that doesn't line up with the other books, they'll more than gladly point it out. Well, they will point it out to you. Um, yeah, it was a real challenge because I didn't remember. You know, I'd be writing along and I'd think, okay, wait a minute. Did that, was that hanging victim, you know, from Vermont or from New York? Or you better check it and you better make sure that it was their seventh vertical, cervical vertebra that was broken and not their fourth. And yeah, so I was constantly checking facts from earlier books. So how does a story come together for you? I, because I've always found mystery and thriller writers very interesting because I always wonder... Uh, do, you, do you have the ending in your head first, then you work back from there? Or what, what's the process that you go through when coming up with a mystery? Well, I write, you know, good old fashioned murder mysteries. Um, it's just that the solutions are driven not by, you know, detective work or gut instinct or whatever. They're driven by science. So I try to use a different science in each book. So it's a bit of a formula. You know, somebody gets caught, somebody gets killed, somebody gets caught, Um it's just figuring out new and different ways to use that age old formula that's challenging. And um, one of the challenging things in a continuing character series is that book may be the first book a reader has picked up. So you have to introduce your characters in your central premise. That book may be the 21st book a reader has picked up. So you, you've got to find a new and creative way to do it 
in every single book. And you don't want to just do, I don't want to just do narrative and, you know, describe it. So I've done it by having Tempe being in a faculty meeting and she's bored. So she's writing her autobiography or I've had her on the stand on the witness stand and she's being cross-examined. So that brings out who she is and what it is she does, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to keep coming up with new ways to reintroduce um, those basics each time. And that's certainly challenging. When you talk to uh, longtime readers of the Bones series, or even uh, people who ended up reading the books after watching the uh, TV series, what do you think it is about uh, Bones that really pulls people in? Because I think there's more to it than just um, exciting cold cases being solved by a forensic anthropologist. I think there's a very uh, human element to the stories that draws people in as well. Well, I think that's true. And I, why are people attracted to murder mysteries at all? Why are they such a, a, you know, a popular genre of reading? I think it's because murder is the ultimate evil. You, the ultimate worst thing you can take from someone is, is their life or take their child's life or whatever. So I think we've always been fascinated with, with murder for that. And it's one of the few crimes, if not the only crime, you really have to have a motive. I mean, robbery, you know what the motive is, but murder, you also part of the mystery is, well, what was the motive for this, for this crime? So it's, that's fun in constructing. Do you think there's also, I I guess what I wanted to ask was, do you think there's something that people really connect with, with Tempe that, you know, it's not just the murder mystery. It's also connecting with this character over a period of time. Oh, I think so. And, and she's, she must, she does have global appeal because the books are in 36 languages. The show was in a hundred foreign territories. So, you know, she's a smart woman and she's passionate about her work. Um, She has a sense of humor. I think all of those, she's approachable. She's got flaws. She's not perfect. She's a recovering alcoholic uh, in the books, not so much in the show, but I think all of that combination just not makes not only from her profession, professional point of view, but also as a person, people are drawn to her. They care about her. I'm really interested too in her relationship with uh, her daughter who served in the military and there's the, the sort of yeah. question of PTSD in there. Could you talk a, a little bit about uh, some of the other characters in the book and, and what you try to imbue them with or, or how you get the inspiration for them, uh, characters like Katie? Yeah, I've got my core cast of characters. Uh, there's Katie and there's Ryan when she's in Montreal, although he he pops up all over the place. There's one of my favorite characters is Skinny, Skinny Slidell. I, I like his gallows humor. <laughs> Skinny is, uh, he may be my favorite character in the whole, except for Tempe, of course. But he, uh, yeah, I love Skinny. And um, when I started writing the books, same thing with the TV show. We wanted to put humor into it. I put humor in my books. And that's a hard, that's a balancing act. You really have to tread lightly because every book, every episode deals with violent death. So how do you put humor in there without being offensive? And for me, the way I do it is through dialogue. And the perfect vehicle is Skinny. I mean, the the interchange between Tempe and Skinny is, is a wonderful opportunity for humor in the books. Yeah, I actually wanted to uh, talk about that briefly a little bit more because it's interesting. I've I've known people that have worked in in crime and also at places like morgues and you know, 
And I've noticed that some people in those professions do, I think, deal with things through maybe having a dark sense of humor. So why do you think humor um, ends up becoming part of these books? Because it, to a lot of people, it is strange. It's like death and humor, how can they go together? But I, I think sometimes mm -hmm. they do in, in, in odd ways, or maybe it's a way of coping for some people. For sure, that's what it is. And when there is humor, and there often is humor in um, at an autopsy, um, it's a tension releaser. You know, people are are anxious and the cops are not in that situation as often as, say, the, the pathologist and the anthropologist. So it's it is definitely a tension releaser. The only situation where there is no humor is um, like a child op child autopsy. Then it's just absolutely dead silent and everyone is completely uh, respectful. It's respectful humor. It's black, as you say, gallows humor, but it's respectful humor most of the time. If you could, could you speak a little bit about the setting of Cold Cold Bones? Because the, the title obviously has a sort of double meaning. On one hand, uh, right. we're talking about, you know, uh, the previous cold cases of Tempe, but we're also talking about, you know, there's a snowstorm in this story. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and I have a home in Charleston, South Carolina. So we're in the South. So we, we get a little bit of snow in Charlotte, like, I don't know, once every five years or something, but we're just not equipped to deal with it. And if anyone even says the S word on television, the newscasters or the weather forecasters, I guess, you know, the, the town goes into a frenzy. So I'm, I'm poking a bit of fun at my hometown in this book. The schools close and the courts close and people strip the grocery stores of bread and milk for some reason. And, um, you know, and then we just hunker in and wait for it to melt. I don't, I think Charlotte has a few plows, but not, not really. Um, so that's the setting for this for this story. It's one of these rare Carolina blizzards that just shuts the shuts the town down. How has uh, the field of forensic anthropology changed um, over the years? Like, especially how have things changed maybe since you wrote Deja Dead all those years back that the first uh, Temperance Brennan novel um, to now when we have uh, cold, cold bones. Like what, what are the biggest changes that have occurred? Um, what role has DNA played in those changes and whatnot? Well, that's the biggest, that's the big gorilla in the room is DNA. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have, well, DNA existed, obviously we knew about it, but it wasn't used in forensic ways back when I started uh, writing Deja Dead. Um, so that's certainly a big development. In anthropology itself, journalists, when they would visit my lab, they used to be able to back in the day before DNA. Now they can't because everyone's DNA has to be on file in case there's an issue of contamination. Um, they would be, I think, underwhelmed with the technology in anthropology. We use certainly we use we use x-rays and we use calipers for measuring things and we use bone saws, autopsy saws for cutting things up. And, but we, in microscopes, we look at things under magnification, but we don't use, a, we don't use, you know, mass spectrometers and gas chromatographers and all of that, that kind of, they're available. If I had a case where I thought that would be a use, I could walk over to the colleague over in the wherever section they're in, the chemistry section or whatever, and use it. But anthropology itself doesn't use a lot of high-tech stuff. I think the biggest development in recent years is the expansion of databases so that we can do comparisons that are legitimate. Uh, take measurements, throw your measurements into a 
a program containing males versus females or uh, various ancestral groups and see where your unknown lies, that kind of thing. That's really improved over the last couple decades. I was really interested in talking about some of the um, the work you've done outside of uh, the novels and, and the writing of uh, mystery and, and sort of thriller novels. Uh, specifically, you've uh, worked in Guatemala before and also um, on the sort of 9-11 case. So uh, could you talk a little bit about, about your time in Guatemala and what that was all about? I was invited to go with a man named Clyde Snow, a uh, wonderful, elegant ge- gentleman who started working in the realm of human rights. You, you cut and, out there for a second. You uh, said Clyde Snow and then it cut out. Yeah, that? He's a, he, sadly, Clyde has now died, but he is the one who began the work of forensic anthropologists within the realm of human, human rights work, going out, recovering the desaparecidos and people uh, in South America and Central America primarily. So I went to Guatemala with with Clyde and we uh, worked on a mass grave up in the highlands um, among Cuchical speaking peoples, Mayans peoples up, up there. And there were, um, I think there were 23 people buried in this same pit. One little old woman would come down every day and her four daughters and nine grandchildren were in this pit. So it was it was a pretty moving experience. So when my fifth book opens, that's exactly where Tempe is. She's in Guatemala exhuming a mass grave up in the highlands. I also wanted to talk about your working at uh, Ground Zero, if we could. Yeah, that was one of the toughest things I've done. Um, I I was a member of the it's called DMORT, Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Teams. There are teams that exist permanently federally, but they're only activated in cases of mass disasters involving large numbers of of fatalities. So following the attack on the Twin Towers, um, nobody could get to New York. So the we weren't normally we're deployed within our own regions. They're like FEMA regions. But then anybody that could get to to New York would, you know, was was deployed to work there. Um, so I went in with, I think, like the second wave and um, we put in 13 hour shifts. We uh, wore hazmat suits and, you know, masks and all breathing apparatus and whatever. Spent hours just going through debris, just trying to recover. Uh, it was very fragmentary. It was all DNA identifications. But yeah, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. Overall, what is the toughest aspect of forensic anthropology and also what's the most rewarding and and are there any personal experiences you've had that could maybe sum up the toughest and most rewarding aspects of the job oh i think the toughest is working on child homicides um i guess the most rewarding is when you get it solved when you get a little you know child identified and and back to their family and and it gives people closure yeah it gives people closure. And also if you can, t- if it's not always criminal activity that we work on, but um, if you can testify in court and if someone is responsible for violence, you can, you know, contribute to getting them off the streets. I don't solve the case myself or put someone in jail myself. I'm one of a team, you know, that with the detectives and the other forensic scientists and the prosecuting attorney, you know, all of us work together towards that goal. If we could as well, um, one thing I wanted to talk about, because I, I know I had listeners that were interested in, in hearing more about your thoughts on uh, 
um, how the TV show came together and your involvement with the TV show. Maybe the what, what do you think the major differences are between obviously the TV series and the series of books? Oh, there are differences. Um, Temperance Brennan in I think of TV Tempe and book Tempe. TV Tempe's younger. She's uh, in Washington D.C. at the Jeffersonian rather than um, commuting between the Carolinas and Quebec as um, Book Tempe does, although Book Tempe gets around. Um, she's uh, she her personal uh, her many of her personality characteristics are she's less sophisticated, certainly less polished than the Temperance Brennan in my books. Initially, when people would say, eh, I don't know, it's different, it's not the same, I would say, well, think of it as a prequel. It's a younger, you know, less sophisticated Tempe working at the Jeffersonian before any of the book activities took place. Was but I like that they were different. I like that, because when I would sit down to write a Temperance Brennan book, I didn't have to worry about what TV Tempe was doing. I, I was gonna ask, was there ever a concern for you about your, your stories um, or, or just the character of Tempe being turned into a TV show? Because I, I know there's always these authors that are, you know, like, oh, I, I get worried when, uh, you know, they want to make my my book, my cherished uh, creation into a show or a movie. Uh, but you were very hands-on with the series. So I'm assuming that wasn't as much of a problem. Yeah, I was very involved and I agreed to go with the particular um group that I went with, the executive producers, because we were all on the same page about a lot of things. And I'd had offers before that that just, they just didn't seem right. So we didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, but with Hart Hansen and Barry Josephson, we wanted the same things. We wanted a character-based show. We didn't want to just do another police procedural. We wanted to create these characters that people would be engaged with and would care about. And we wanted to put humor into the show. They coined a they coined the phrase crimity for us. We were the first crimity on the air. So yeah, I worked as a producer on the show. I was involved. I did write. You wrote a, a few of the episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. I did that. One. That was fun. I, when Hart proposed it, I said, Hart, I don't know how to write a TV screenplay. And he said, well, you didn't know how to write a novel either. And that worked out. And I thought, well, okay, that's true. So yeah, I did write some. Before we wrap up, there were just maybe one or two more questions I had. One was, um, I've always found interesting, and this may come more from people who've watched the TV series, but I know uh, a lot of people that I've met that are on uh, the autistic spectrum are big fans of the temperance Brennan character. And I was wondering how you feel about that, because I know I don't get the impression you wrote the character as necessarily being on the spectrum, but um, it, it, there, there's a relation that people, I, I guess, have to this character. And, you know, I guess it's inspiring for some people on the spectrum. She's awkward. There's no doubt about it. She's awkward and she's uh, not polished and she's not really very worldly in a lot of the things in the uh, particularly early on but i think if you watched all 12 seasons all 246 episodes what emily de chanel did with that character was brilliant and that character evolved over time and i think she matured over time as well and she certainly matured in her um relationships with others over the course of the 246 episodes are you, are you happy that people uh, have been able to relate to this character so well, just from different angles. Like I said, there's people that may may have issues on the spectrum. There's people uh, that just find her to be a strong female character, and they're attracted to that. Do you? Do you um, are you proud? I guess that 
uh, so many different people have been able to connect with her. Exactly. I think that she's a multi-layered character, and I think it's uh, fantastic that different people can find different aspects of her with which they with which they identify or to which they aspire. Or so the last few things I wanted to mention was, uh, I guess, first, what do you hope? Um, what do you hope to do with uh, Temperance Brennan next? And uh, is there anything else you can say about Cold Cold Bones? Uh, what do you think people? Uh, will be surprised by, I guess, this new book. Um, I hope they'll be surprised by the ending. I mean, that's the job of a thriller writer, a mystery writer. I know if I'm reading one and I do read them, if I figure it out before the author reveals the, the answer, I'm I'm disappointed in the author. I mean, I like the twist. I like the surprise at the ending. So I hope they'll experience that. Uh, what am I doing next with her? I am currently writing book number 22 which is called The Bone Hacker. Uh, what can I tell you about it? It's, um, as the title might suggest, it's going to involve cybercrime, but it also involves, it takes place partly in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and it involves victims who are um, turning up, disappear, and then bodies are found and their hands have been hacked off. So you see what I did there? It's a double kind of thing. It, what what was uh what gave you the idea to deal with uh, cybercrime in this upcoming novel? Whenever I do something, I try to look two years down the road because it takes me a year to write a book and then it's a year in production. So I try to look for something that might be on people's minds um, two years down the road. When I started The Bone Code, which involves... Uh, a flare-up of an, it's not a pandemic, but it's a flare-up of an infectious disease, capnocytophagia. I just thought that was really interesting. And what if, because it's a very nasty disease, it's like a flesh-eating disease. What if there was this flare-up and no one could explain? So I wrote that thinking, yeah, that might be of interest. And sure enough, along comes COVID. So I just try to look ahead and cybercrime is, it doesn't take a genius to know this is huge in our future. I should also ask, and I promise this will be the last question, but um, uh, with, since you mentioned the pandemic and COVID, uh, how as a writer did you deal with uh, COVID? And, and what I mean by that is uh, like, how do you make the decision uh, to include it in one of the books or include it in a story? How do you, uh, how do you sort of work around uh, the pandemic and its effect on things when telling these stories? I think in today's you know, 2022, every author who's starting a book is going to have to address that question. And there's no right answer. You can really incorporate it. You can set your story in a modified post-pandemic world, or you can ignore it or give lip service to it. You know, I give some passing reference to it, but then I get on with the story. I don't really incorporate it very much at all. Well, Kathy Reichs, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax News, and I really hope everyone checks out the newest book in the Bones series, Cold, Cold Bones. Thank you again, Kathy Reichs. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kathy Reichs, and that you'll check out Cold, Cold Bones, the latest Temperance Brennan Mystery. 
As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Should be doing another episode with C. Derek Varn for our Patreon supporters later this month. So be sure to check that out on the patreon.com slash parallaxviews page. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.